You're listening to part two of the 30 Second Timeout podcast for April 25th, 2014. I keep thinking about those times you ran away and I can't get it out of my head. We keep drifting because you keep floating away. I can't believe all the words that you said. I keep thinking about those times you ran away and I can't get it out of my head. We keep drifting, cause you keep floating away. I can't believe all the words that you say. Continuing my conversation with Mitchell Davidson on the Blue Jays from part one. So I think we're I think we're on the same page here that you know not only have they kind of hit a his hit a hesitation to take a chance they also hit their spending ceiling and they've run, run out of money. Where do you see this team going forward? Yeah, uh, that's the interesting thing. So, like like I, I, I just mentioned, uh, this payroll this year is $20 million more than last year. And that's just... So about 130, 150? Yeah, it's a hundred, I think it's 137 right now. So okay. they have 96, almost $100 million committed next year without Melky Cabrera, without Casey Jansen, or without Colby Rasmus. Um, on top of that, Adam Lind isn't signed and he his option is for seven million so if you were to re-sign all those guys you're looking at another maybe 30 or 40 for the year um Mm -hmm. so they're gonna have to spend um and pretty much spend to what they're at right now so for me realistically you might not keep all those guys but but the thing is uh it'll be very interesting if they don't make the playoffs to see whether or not they decide to stay at 130 some on million or revert back closer to sort of like 110. And there are options. Uh, you could say Anthony Goes could replace Colby Rasmus. Um, that would save you, you know, 8 to 10 to $12 million. But the question is, you know, how many of those cuts are you going to make? I don't have that answer now, but um, it's going to be interesting to see for sure. Uh, certainly, the team isn't. if the team doesn't make the playoffs, they're not going to keep around a lot of the same guys. Fair enough? Uh, Wouldn't you say? Like, if they're not going to go, if they don't make the playoffs, they're not going to go, okay, well, Adam Lind is going to be one of these guys that we got to bring back. They're not going to go spend that extra $40 million to bring back the same team that they didn't make the playoffs with. Yeah. Um, for me, Lind is probably one that you pick up just because his option's cheap comparatively okay. for a first base. Yeah, player. maybe 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 the, I'm picking on the no, wrong guy no, here. Maybe it's, it's, it's a question that you certainly have to ask. Um, but for me, the other guys, like, if Melky Cabrera puts up the kind of numbers that he's been putting up so far, uh, if he sort of you know floats around the 300 mark, hits 20 home runs, uh, people are going to pay for him, and the Jays aren't going to be willing to pay it. So, I mean, this this offseason, the Detroit Tigers gave Rajay Davis something like five million dollars a year. Rajay Davis should not be making five million dollars a year. Probably not, but he's a serviceable player <laughs> and. You know, sometimes teams are going to outbid you on the free agent market, and they're really going to push for it. So, for me, the question for those kinds of guys is, not only would it be, let's say, Melky right now is making eight mil a year. Maybe if he has good year, you you say he should deserve ten. But in the free agent market, that could be twelve, fourteen, uh, and it's kind of like showing up to a bidding war, but only bringing what's in your wallet. Um, I, I really don't think the Jays are, are ready to kind of bring the suitcases of cash when it comes to these kinds of players. If other teams want them, they're going to take them. You're tossing me the perfect segue, man. If, if they're not going to be able to afford these players now, 
So who, what are some of the players that they... Because one of the things that happened when they went big for it uh, two winters ago was that they cleared out their farm system and they left it pretty depleted. Who are some of the players on this team that they can't afford next season or that they want off the payroll that they can use to then kind of replenish their farm system? Yeah. Um, the first one is Melky, just because he's a free agent. I mean, well, technically any of the guys who are going to be unrestricted, so Casey Jansen and uh, Colby Rasmus, would just be... They're going to get calls about just because they are unrestricted. But Melky specifically, he's a guy, if he's really hitting well, teams are really going to want him. You might be able to get a lot for him. But uh, for me, the real big one is Mark Burrow. Um, yeah. It's every team wants pitching when they get to the stretch run, and every team wants pitching from people who've been there. This is a guy it's true. who's won a World Series with the White Sox. He's been to the playoffs before. He knows what it takes. All those cliches. He's durable. He doesn't fall apart. He goes out there and throws every fifth day. It's great. So if they're giving away one of their best arms, are we looking at a situation, if they start moving Mark Burley and those types of guys, are we looking at a rebuild? Um, no. Uh, the reason I would say that is is Burley is making $20 million, $19 million next year. And it's going up. Yeah, yeah. so he has uh, he has the biggest salary of any Blue Jay. Um, which is hard to believe just because they swallowed that contract when they made the trade. Um, a guy last year, like if you look at uh, Jake Peavy got traded to Boston, Jake Peavy had something like $16 million a year salary. And uh, Boston picked him up at the deadline knowing that they had extra years because they wanted to make the run, and they won the World Series, so they'll make that trade over and over again. So I think right. Burley's the same thing. And if you dump $20 million, well then, let's go back. You could sign Melky Colby and Casey Jansen for pretty much the same. So, you know, if you've got Batista and Eddie and these guys under contract, I don't think you're going to necessarily do a rebuild, but I think it's going to be a situation of we need to have whatever prospects we have make the jump, and maybe we need to try and add a couple more smaller pieces and pray for the best. Would you rather see this Jays team uh, fire off and just start throwing money at people and hoping that something sticks? Or would you rather see them kind of revert to an Oakland A's uh, money ball style? Because the Oakland A's had like half of Mark Burley's salary in their starting rotation, and they completely outpitched the Toronto Blue Jays last year. Just throwing it out there as kind of two ways this team can go. Which way would you rather see? Yeah. Uh, for me, the best part about Oakland is if you look at their position players, the only guy who's making, I think, like over six million is is Cespedes, Yoan Cespedes, the guy they got from the Cuban defect, who they had to bid big time to get him, and that was a bit of a shock that they landed him. But Definitely. they've made trades for guys like Josh Reddick, who became an all-star, won a gold glove, hit 30 home runs, and they got him from Boston for peanuts, and they got him for uh, Andrew Bailey, I think. I could be wrong about that, but either way, um, the point is... They trade guys at their ceiling, and they pick up guys who they know have higher ceilings but are making less money. Mm -hmm. I don't know if Toronto's fan base will go for that. I mean, if you ask anybody walking down the street or anybody at a Jays game, like, who's your favorite player or why do you show up, most of them say the home run, and most of them say Batista or Encarnacion. Yeah, it's I true. Mean, the, the one thing I'll say about the fan base in Toronto and being there so many times you notice it, if we lose a ball game 4-3 or 5-3, but we hit two home runs, they go home happy. If we win a ball game one nothing or two nothing, and you know it's it's fairly uneventful, but they win, they go home unhappy. 
So it, oh. it almost seems like you might get more fans if you have a guy who hits 50 home runs compared to a winning ball club, which Oakland is. Yeah, maybe that's why Rodgers just went in on it. They saw what the fan base was like, and they are like, we know we can make some money off this regardless of whether or not we win or not. Like I said, last year they finished, what, last in the division, and they drew, set a, they drew more yeah, fans. Yeah, they set an attendance record. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they drew more fans last year than they have since the, the 92-93 years. So, uh, it's, I mean, maybe this is for another podcast, but it's this kind of Toronto sports fans supporting teams who don't really have the best end response. It's very true. It's very true. Uh, in terms of, let's finish up the, the, the talk on the Blue Jays. We want to move into uh, bigger and more playoffy issues. But do you blame Alex Anthopoulos or John Gibbons for last season being abysmal and any kind of... Uh, any kind of terrible, like just a terrible season this season. If that's how things turn out, if that's what if they ended up missing the playoffs, do you blame Alex Anthopoulos or John Gibbons for what's happened here? Uh, yeah, this is one that I've struggled with talking to a lot of other Jays fans. Um, to me, I can't blame Anthopoulos because uh, no one thought that they were making the wrong moves, or at least very few people did. Um, and arguably, if you look at this year's team, they're better than last year. They improved at catcher, they improved at second base, their bullpen pitching has solidified, and, uh, you know, they've got a couple arms in the rotation who are back from injury, which is just as good as signing somebody sometimes. Um, so if they were supposed to finish first last year and they got better this year, why can't they do it again? So I don't blame Anthopolis. Um, for me, I think the, the really big mistake about last year was probably on Gibbons, John Gibbons' shoulders. Um, and that was, you've got this team that's expected to go to the World Series and what have you, um, with all these sort of superstar players, and you bring in a first-year batting coach and a first-year uh, pitching coach. Both right. of those things just kind of screamed, why? Um, you know, if somebody like Jose Batista goes, oh, I'm struggling at the plate, come help me. At the time, it was Chad Vitola and and it's his first time with the superstar, he goes, well, have you tried, like, I don't know, dropping the leg kick? Like, you just, it, they, <laughs> they don't really, they've never dealt with guys with this ego or this much success before. Um, Definitely. So you really need somebody experienced. And now they've switched both of those roles. So uh, for me, if it all falls apart, um, it's, it's tough to say whose blame it is. But uh, I think... John Gibbons set us up to fail, and uh, that sounds harsh. But I think John Gibbons made a couple of bad decisions. Well, the setting up to fail is interesting because I, if my argument as to why Alex Anthopoulos, and I don't necessarily agree with this argument, I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate, sure. but my, one of my arguments for why Alex Anthopoulos would be the, the person to blame for last year and this year is that he built up expectations in this city prematurely and that they didn't have those kinds of role players or those... Uh, those half the team that you mentioned that were ready to take on this kind of salary and these kinds of expectations to go out and have a successful season. And they go and they bring in a guy like John Gibbons, who, as you said, didn't necessarily manage the best. And that's kind of why I would pin this on Alex Anthopoulos if I were to do that. It's just that, you know, it was too early for them to make this kind of move. Yeah, uh, technically you could go up the food chain, right? If John Gibbons was bad, who brought in John, John Gibbons? A, and who approved? And who so. approved like the hitting coach and the and the first year coaches coming onto right. the coming onto um, the bench? 
I, you know, I've got to agree with that in some, some respect, but at the same time, as to any good argument, there's obviously a contrary, and that's just right. generally that the hype was probably too high for this team. I mean... But they per- they totally perpetuated that. The uh, I love this team yeah. and uh, what who's that metric? Metric singing on every other commercial. Okay, so the, the <laughs> thing about the metric commercial is uh, when they show Dickie and and uh, Moro and the pitchers, the lyric that um, that she sings is "No one's getting out." And I just thought that that was somewhat um, of a bad omen for the year. <laughs> I noticed it about halfway through the season and. and uh, <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious! Yeah, so metrics, uh, metrics, somewhat psychic, I suppose. Yeah, I don't. I if they were thinking baseball <laughs> when they wrote that, who knows? But <laughs> oh man, maybe they were just not Jays. They're just putting a jinx on us. Yeah, Toronto bands. How they're going about so it? Really, yeah. really hurts Jeez. us. But whatever. <laughs> All right, let's move on to some teams that might actually make the playoffs. And I want your opinion on who's the favorite in the ALEs because there's a lot of interesting teams in this division. Baltimore has had a bit of a resurgence. Uh, as I said last week, uh, which I was made fun of for, the Yankees are the Yankees, and the Red Sox are the Red Sox, and the Devil Rays seem to be one of the more consistent teams in the division over the past couple of years. Who do you think takes it? Uh, yeah, so I'm glad that you let me answer this question 20 games into the season, because uh, <laughs> 20 games, on opening day, I would have said Tampa Bay. Um, okay, and now there's, a, now there's the injury, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, Chris Archer isn't pitching great, Matt Moore is done for the year. Uh, Jeremy Hellickson's still in the minors. Um, Alex Cobb's hurt, and who knows about him. So their their strength was their pitching, and I thought they could win on pitching alone, but they're starting to lose that. So for me, it shifts from Tampa over to uh, to Boston. Mm-hmm. Now, you kind of hit it on the head in, in the fact that any team can win it. Um, I don't think Baltimore can. I just don't think that they have enough pitching overall to get it done. Uh, Don't tell that to Adam Jones. <laughs> yeah, he might he might come at you. Um, and the thing about the Yankees is is you're kind of right. The Yankees are the Yankees. They sign all these guys who you thought, you know, what are you doing? And lo and behold, they're you know the best players that have ever walked the face of the earth. And there's something that when they put on that pinstripe, I don't know what it is. And the other thing that helps the Yankees is, uh, you know they're playing in a matchbox. Like, it's literally the smallest stadium I've ever seen in my entire life. So you can hit a pop fly to right field, and it's a three-run home run, and it just annoys me so much when we go in there. So, um, (laughs) Well, they they know the Bronx Bombers. Yeah. The Bronx Bombers. They they have to perpetuate that, so they build a really small stadium. Yeah, it it hurts. It does. Um, Same with Boston, (laughs) you know. The Green Monster is not that hard to get over, so... Um, but overall, I think Boston's got, you know, they got the experience. They've got a really good uh, closing and setup sort of bullpen going on. Um, you know, the hitters didn't really change. Jacoby Ellsbury sets up that lineup really well. So I think if anybody's in a position to really take it, it's Boston. Um, can they repeat? I don't think they can go all the way. Oh, <laughs> uh, I want to I want to build on that segue, but I just want to talk about the Yankees for one more second. Yeah, we could come back. To Do you remember when the whole Alex Rodriguez thing was going on, and the Yankees were talking about how much they wanted to slash their payroll? Where did that go when the offseason came around? Do you remember this? Yeah, um, yeah. There was so much talk, <laughs> and then they're the like, Yankees "Oh, okay. Well, it, now we're gonna." They want to get under the luxury tax, like, "Oh, we got to do this." You know, we want to slash our budget, and they go out and just buy everyone up that's on the free agent market. I, I, I remember that very well. And to me, when Robinson Cano did not re-sign with the Yankees, 
I thought I was like, oh, yeah, okay, it's true, it's happening. Um, the Yankees are actually cutting their budget, yeah. and then... And then they spend more without Cano than they would have with him. <laughs> yeah, so, which is like, if you're Seattle and you're sitting there and you're like, okay, so we thought the Yankees weren't giving him money because of budget cuts, and now they're just giving everyone else money, what the heck did we just buy? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, when they came to Toronto and they won two out of three, they did, and they're in first place right now. But their infield going around all four spots in the infield was uh, they had Kelly Johnson playing first base, who's not a first baseman. Uh, they had some nope. guy named um, Dean Anna playing second, who I I <laughs> never heard of. I like you pick him out of my high school yearbook. That's I never heard of him before in my life. Um, <laughs> they had Derek Jeter at short, and sometimes they were bringing in uh, another guy to play there, and his name's escaping me right now. And then at third base, they had Jan Jervis Salarte who was like a nice. nine-year minor leaguer who's now in the big leagues, and he's hitting like 315. I mean, he's like he doesn't have a vowel in his name, and he's hitting 320. <laughs> it's insane. Um, I, I don't know how it happens, but everybody who puts on a Yankees uniform turns out to be amazing. Um, like, they traded Jesus Montero, who's supposed to be the next best catcher ever. Um, they mm-hmm. traded him for Michael Pineda. And Montero has played a cup of coffee in the big leagues with Seattle. He's terrible. He's not even, I don't think he's on their team right now. And Michael Pineda is like the next big thing in line for the side. So it's just, it's like, you know, there's a, the baseball gods either love the Yankees or, um, or money just buys you everything. Yeah. Money buys you happiness, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what it I is. guess so. I guess so. All right. Uh, I'm going to jump over a bunch of different divisions. We were kind of running short on time because sure. uh, we had such a great discussion. But World Series, who, is, who are your two teams in the World Series? Yeah, I can do these quickly. Um, Atlanta from the National League, uh, the pitching's just too too good, even though they have had some injuries. And guys like wow. Freddie Freeman, Justin Upton, they, they've got all the pieces there. Um, Definitely. I see them putting it together. Cincinnati would be like the one team if I was able to put like just a little caveat or an asterisk because – they moved Joey Votto into the two-hole, and that's something that is completely whack, but it's working, and they've got some potential. They're my dark horse, but I can't do that. So it's Atlanta, and on the other side, uh, it's a team you mentioned earlier, which is the Oakland Athletics. Um, wow, really? Moneyball is going to get to the World Series. Yeah, uh, they have a really tough time winning playoff series. Um, there's something like uh, they've lost their last seven elimination games, something like that. But um, yeah. I just, they're just too good at, at this point. They're in every, I've never seen a team that's in every single ball game. Um, they have clutch hitting. They've got speed. The pitching is insane, as you mentioned earlier. The bullpen guys, they keep pulling them out of Ireland and Australia, and they're just throwing up zeros. It's, <laughs> it's, it's really out of whack, but, uh, yeah, it's working. So yeah, it's, it's Oakland and Atlanta, and I'll just answer the next one because I know it's coming. Um, it's Atlanta that's going to take it. Um, oh, no. Billy Bean's not going to the last game of the season? <laughs> no, he's not. It's the money ball over yeah, again. I don't know. Oh, we'll no. Have another movie. They're going to have a it, sequel. But, um, they're gonna, yeah, they're going to have a sequel. It's going to be awesome. I, I just, if Oakland can't win a series and I'm already picking them to win two, uh, I have a hard time picking them to win three. So, uh, for me, it's, yeah. it's the Atlanta Braves, World Series champions, and uh you heard it here first, folks. You heard it here. Mitch is calling it. Yeah, of it's course, the there's, there's no money over... attached, but that's uh, for what it's worth, I guess. 
yeah, I wouldn't put any money on that uh, this early in the season. No, no idea what's going to happen. But uh, Mitch, I really appreciate you joining us, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Hope to have you back again soon. Yeah, it was awesome. Anytime. Thanks for having me. There you go, Blue Jays fans. You are set up for the past, present, and future of this franchise. Uh, thanks so much for coming in and giving me that uh, that analysis. Really appreciate it. Uh, it was really good, really in-depth. We're going to move right on ahead here. We're going to jump into Champions League, and I'm very happy to be joined by my next guest. Joined now by uh, our ch- new Champions League expert, Fariz Nathu. Fariz, how are you today? Good, Colin. How are you doing? Good. Let's jump right into things. I know that the two of us combined have really uh, kind of lived through this Manchester United season so far. And this week, I wrote on our lineup that uh, David Moyes is apparently on his way out. He is now actually officially gone. Uh, do you feel that that's a fair thing for United to have done? I, I think that we need to start off by talking about a couple of things. I mean, Gary Neville, uh, sorry, Ryan Giggs, apparently, when he took charge of the team in his first team meeting, he said, we will go back to playing like United. And that's something I haven't seen this season. I haven't seen any tactical conviction from David Moyes. It seemed like we were a different side week to week. And I think what the board ultimately had to weigh out was the fact that the spending of the money, the $150 million war chest that's apparently going to be handed to ex-manager, mm-hmm. is David Moyes the right person to spend that money? And I think right. the board was convinced, especially after the Everton defeat, where we just looked miserable, um, that, that David Moyes is not the right person for that job. Especially in light of how Fellini and uh, Mata have fared so far, the two big moves that he made in the offseason and on the January transfer window, correct? Absolutely. I think Mata, Mata will come good. I'm, I'm unconvinced that Fellaini will be as effective as he was at Everton. He just doesn't seem to fit into that United system that's taught from academy to the junior leagues to the senior leagues. I mean, it's, it's a tried and tested system, so I don't see how Fellaini fits into that. So is that the biggest difference between this year and last year for you then, is the lack of tactical conviction? I mean, we heard these great stories coming out at the end of the year last year after we lost to Alex Ferguson, and, and people were saying things like, he made the outside world the enemy. He made the United team go out every week and make them think that the world is against you, prove them wrong. Right. And I think that a lot of the things that we, we have seen this year is that the coach failed to own the dressing room and the players ultimately thus failed the coach. So it's kind of this like self-reinforcing dynamic. But what I really think happened is that there, this is the same squad that won the season last year. This is arguably the better, the better squ- a better squad than last season. So I think a lot of it has to come down to mental fortitude. Uh, can their struggles be attributed to losing Sir Alex Ferguson and Moyes coming in? Or is it more the results of a lack of, uh, of age and lack of depth? I feel like Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, he picked this time to kind of walk away because he knew that a lot of the players on his squad were kind of reaching a ceiling and he kind of saw the, uh, the Glazers probably not going to invest a ton of money uh, given the team's debt the way it is. Do you think that he kind of saw the age and lack of depth coming and got out? Or is Look, the fact that they lost him the biggest reason why they weren't successful this season? Look, I mean, we've seen a lot of reports coming out over the last, you know, 24, 48, 72 hours saying that, is this Sir Alex Ferguson's kind of last masterstroke? Is this his narcissism really coming down? And and I'm not so sure I believe that. I, I think that Sir Alex Ferguson is a man for this club. I, I think that Ferguson still sits on the board for this club. And so when people talk about, is this Ferguson's masterstroke, I think he really does have a vested interest in the long-term success of this club. His entire philosophy was built around the youth team. I think United are at something freaky, like 3,000 straight games with a member of the youth academy in the starting lineup. <laughs> and so it, it, it may come down to a lack of age, but I don't think it's, a, it's sort of a, a narcissistic stroke on the part of Ferguson. 
Uh, one of the teams that's done exceptionally well in the Premier League so far this year is David Moyes' old team in Everton, who are now sitting in fourth, I believe. Uh, what has been their key to success this season? You know, Everton are a, are a really competitive, really different dynamic squad. And I, and I think we really have to look at Roberto Martinez as one of the world's rising managers. Um, you know, when, when Moyes left, they hung, they hung banners in, in the ends of, of Goodison Park saying from death's door to European tours. But, but when Moyes left, it was, and Martinez came in, they said, you know, this guy has a mind for football. And, uh, there was a great article in The Guardian about him about two weeks ago saying that he's a Spanish player that's, um, been educated in English fundamentals. And I think that Roberto Man- Martinez, the way he's gotten the best out of Baines is, is just unbelievable. And, mm-hmm. and Baines has to be seen as a, as a key factor to that squad. Whether or not he stays or goes, I mean, their, their entire success this season has to be, you know, really, you have to look at those two individuals for me. You mentioned uh, key figures to the squad. Uh, I definitely think that Lukaku has definitely been a big part in the success of Everton, as he was at West Brom uh, last season. Now, yeah. he's probably not going to be there next season because I'm assuming that Chelsea's going to want to stick them in their lineup as he is on loan from there. Do you think that their success, not only minus Lukaku, but just in general, uh, can be sustained? Look, Martinez has played the, the loan market really well. Forget just Lukaku. You've got this bright young lad from, uh, from Barcelona, Deo Lufeu, who's also on loan, has looked incredibly skilled, incredibly talented when he's on, when he, when he is sort of there. And this is sort of, I call it the Borussia Dortmund problem. It's, it's how long can you keep your, your skilled players in your side and you keep your club investing and finding these new young prospects. Um, that's and, a really good name for it. Yeah, the Borussia Dortmund effect. I'm, I'm <laughs> definitely going to trademark definitely. that. You should. <laughs> Um, speaking of Chelsea and Lukaku, moving on to uh, the, the two teams at the top of the table so far this season. Chelsea now sits five points back of Liverpool with three games to play. And there's a real possibility here that Chelsea could walk away with no silverware this season. Uh, does that put, if that's a real scenario, if they, don't win the cha- if they don't win the Champions League, if they don't win the Premier League, is Jose Mourinho on the hot seat? Look, Jose Mourinho, I mean, he said it from the beginning, and, and this will be his, his way out with the media and his way out with the board. He said that we're not set up to win any titles this season. He, he came out and said that. I mean, he mm-hmm. said that the whole season to try to, I mean, it, some interpretations will tell you that he's tried to take the pressure off the, off his players. He's tried to take the pressure off the club. He's saying that, you know, we're in this transition stage. We've got this old crowd, this new crowd. But you know what? If, if they've, they've dropped some really crucial results over the last little bit. And apparently Jose's got permission from the from the board now to line up a weekend lineup against Liverpool this weekend, effectively seeding the title so that they can focus on the Champions League. And we right. have to ask ourselves, okay, if, if Jose Mourinho side can come can can go to England, can go to can go to um, can go to England and, and win and get a result, will they will they be able to beat a Real Madrid Barcelona? Uh, sorry, a Real Madrid um, Bayern. I, I think the answer is no. I think the no, answer it's is definitely, definitely no. no. So why are they fielding a weakened team? It doesn't make a lot of sense. No, and I, I think, uh, just to weigh in on what you said about Mourinho coming out and saying, you know, this isn't a team set up to win, how can you possibly say that when there's that much money invested in that lineup? I, 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 can't, I can't imagine. It, I mean, there's there's it, some really skilled players in that lineup, too. And, I, and, and does it come down to Jose Mourinho not getting the best out of his players? I think there are some questionable results we can look at this season where we might be able to say, yes, that's the truth. I, I would say that they're far and the way in terms of their structure at every position. They're far and away the best team in the Premier League. Like this, him coming out and saying that this isn't a, a team that's going to contend or win this season is kind of just a way of bringing expectations off himself. 
for having to deal because I mean the last two managers barely even lasted a full year. Don't don't you think this is way his way of basically trying to solidify his position in the years to come at Chelsea and getting uh, uh, the owner off his back? I, I think this is one thing, but you have to understand that I, I don't think Jose got the transfers he wanted coming into the window. I mean, he was he was sort of late to the table, and and he said for he said recently uh, we have we need to obtain real strikers in this window. And I think that up front is where we will start to ask real questions. Now, you have all these rumors uh, linking Chelsea to every striker in the book. But when you look at the front of the, the side they've got, you've got Demba Ba and Fernando Torres. I mean, and Lukaku Fernan- coming in, too. And, and Lukaku coming in, too. I mean, with those three blokes coming into the side, we have to ask ourselves, does Jose Mourinho really need to spend? Who is available in the market? I mean, you have people linking them with Diego Costa, but will, will they be able to pay Atletico's fee? Does that mean Fernando Torres goes back to Atletico? Uh, these are questions we've, that Mourinho has to be asking himself and that as, a, as Chelsea supporters, they've got to be asking that of the club as well. What do you feel they need to address in, the, in any future transfer windows uh, coming up in the summer and maybe even in January? I, I think they've got to address, um, they've got to sign a, a center back because you, you look at John Terry, he's, he's aging. He's played phenomenally this season, don't get me wrong. Yeah, but they, has, need to sort of, they need to get an understudy for, for, for John Terry and I think they do need to sign a, a top-tier striker. When I look at the midfield of that club, William, Oscar, Azard, I mean, those are three guys that I do not want any side to come up against in the Premier League. They, they should w- be thrashing sides week in, week out with those three in the middle. Now, I, I would like you to weigh in on William because I've had this conversation with the other Champions League analysts that I have, uh, Matty Ice, before, uh, is that William has not impressed me or him at all in terms of how he, when he gets the ball and he has open space, he likes to really attack right at the defender. What what is what has your opinion of William been so far this year? I think if you look at the way Mourinho lines up his side, I, I'm not sure maybe that's one of the faults of Mourinho's side the way they're lined up right now, right? I mean if, if any objective person is looking at William, Oscar and Azar in the middle, you do not want William to be the one carrying the ball. Mm-hmm. And and I would argue that of those three, William is intended to be the most defensive. Right. Um and, and so that's kind of like a hallmark of Jose Mourinho's side is this high working rate defensive midfielder. But maybe what's happened is that Williams started to pick up the ball. He's won the ball back and, and then he's gotten into these weird positions. And you, and you saw this in the Atletico position in, in the Atletico game where he just seemed to pick up the ball in the wrong position. And you were thinking, get the ball out to someone quicker than you get the ball up and run up in support and fill the gap. If there's a counter, yeah. so maybe it's just a case of mistaken identity for William. Uh, just touching on the other team that uh, is sitting at the top of the table right now. You're speaking of strikers and high class talent that uh, you know that Chelsea might go after in the uh, future transfer markets. Sturridge and Suarez have been an absolutely unstoppable force this season. Uh, what has allowed them to flourish the way they have at Liverpool? You know, I think a lot of it has to come down to when you look at their midfield this year: Coutinho, Gerrard. They have been giving those two guys just phenomenal service. And, and Gary Neville was on Monday Night Football about two weeks ago showing that the intensity of Suarez's runs, so the pace at which he's executing the runs and the number of runs he's executing a match, is way higher. And so that does two things. One, it, it puts Suarez into a position where the more chances he has to get the ball at, the, at his feet, the more chances he's going to score. I mean, he's unplayable. In, in the box, he's unplayable. You do not want him in the box with the ball. But that also opens up space for, for Sturridge because defenders are scared of both of them. But if they had to pick one, they're going to go for Suarez. So Sturridge has been definitely reaping the, the, the fruits of that. But don't get me wrong, Sturridge is a talent in of himself. And, and Chelsea have got to ask, this is the Sturridge that we let go. Yeah, I remember, I remember when they transferred uh, Sturridge to uh, Liverpool last year. 
right away he just like nutmegged like four people yep. on like the first goal that he's uh, that uh, he set up in that uh, in that first game for Liverpool. Uh, do you think Liverpool holds on to take listen, the listen, title after the game before Norwich? I can't remember who they they played before Norwich. Before the, after the City game, the Liverpool City game. Um, the, the, you saw that huddle with uh, with Gerard getting everyone into the middle. I mean, Gerard is sobbing and he's saying something like, "This doesn't slip now. This does not slip now. We go to Norwich, mm-hmm. we do the exact same." And and that will be, I think, the moment that when we look back on this season, you'll see a resurgent Liverpool side that will be contenders for some years to come. In, in my view, anyways. Um, do you you think uh, they can sustain a run next year as well? I I think they can. I think. Mm. It, what what this will again sort of be contingent on them signing somewhat of an understory study to a guy like um, uh, Steven Gerrard, so, someone to a real center back in the back. They've had some troubles there, but they are a serious team, and they they've almost broken that idea that that you can't score just to win titles. They've broken that idea that you need to play defense because I mean, if you look at some of their scores recently, look at the Norwich game. I mean, they conceded. Yeah. They didn't concede a few goals. They conceded quite a few goals, and they just outscored the opposition. I, I think they'll hold on to take it. It's definitely uh, definitely interesting. Uh, both both Chelsea and Liverpool will 100% be in the Champions League next year. And we want to touch on the Champions League matches that we just had last week, Atletico-Chelsea and Bayern-Real. I want to start off by getting your opinion of the Atletico-Chelsea game. Chelsea kind of parked the bus, don't you think? And you know what? It's so It seems sort of typical of a, of a Jose Mourinho side in the Champions League over the past few years. And you've got to wonder, you know, they played for a result. And I tweeted at some point, it, it was fascinating tactically. And that for me was because Jose Mourinho set up in this defensive, rigid form. And then in mm-hmm. contrast, you had Diego Simeon sides just, they were pressing so aggressively in the middle third, but they just didn't have a finish in the final third. And, yeah. and that to me was a clash of sides, but it ultimately ended up in a really boring game of football to watch. I, I Honestly, it was not entertaining. There was no yeah. entertainment value because... It just seemed like you had two teams that were lined up to do the exact opposite, and one team was saying, "You know what? We'll take a we'll take a draw. We'll walk away from this." And Atletico knew they had to score, and so now you have a situation where Chelsea might not be happy with that result. I mean, they 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 would have taken they wanted the draw, but I mean, this puts Atletico on the front foot. If they go if they go to to Chelsea and they score a goal, I mean, Chelsea's in in the rough. Essentially, they conceded the away goal that would have been so valuable for them. Then they put one of the best offensive teams in the world at an advantage where they get an away goal at Stamford Bridge and Chelsea, you know, won't be able to answer that. And, and and you don't want to put a club like Atletico that is riding this emotional roller coaster. They're in contention in La Liga. They're in contention in the Champions League. And you're putting them in an away game where their coach is famous for giving them that mindset of like, let's go out and make this opposition, like let's let them know who we are. And so they're going to go to Chelsea and they're going to just, they're going to go at them. They want to stomp on their throats almost, so to speak. I mean, I'm not saying Chelsea won't be set up to win at home, but Jose Mourinho's sides are always built on defensive stability, and Atletico is just the antithesis of that. And so it'll be... Sorry, go ahead. I said it'll be really interesting to see how that works out at Chelsea. Do you think uh, uh, Atletico burns out in the fact that they're uh, involved in both competitions, both in La Liga and in the Champions League? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, they're playing a lot of football at at this point in the season, and this is a squad... That you know, this is their first. This is their first real time this deep into both competitions, mm-hmm. and so it, it's definitely a possibility. But I think that they have a fantastic manager in Diego Simeone, and I think that they are amped about this com- this competition. They want to win both, and so there's a really- there's a thought process that I had in my mind that what uh, what Jose Mourinho really wanted to do when he parked the bus like he did 
was to kind of counterattack the way that Real Madrid did against Bayern and against Barcelona in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but they didn't have the striker that was able to hold onto the ball and do that because Fernando Torres did not look good to me when I watched this game. What do you what do you think of that notion? Oh, I I would have to agree. I mean, they were they were just set up trying to trying to get that out. And I mean, there were a few times towards the latter ten minutes of the match where I thought there the game's broken open a little bit. Someone will score. Someone will get an away goal. I thought, and I thought Chelsea might have scored. And it, credit to Atletico, they did have chances, but. You know, it, it just seemed that they didn't, they, they weren't after a result more than a draw. Yeah, that's true. That was, it was just, it was totally boring to watch. I actually found, I've watched, uh, it just seems to me that every time that Chelsea, or any English club for that matter, gets into, uh, deep into European competition, they have this tendency to kind of turtle when they face, uh, big time clubs in Spain, Germany, and whatever. And uh, certainly that was the case with Chelsea, but I always find that very, very interesting and how they play so well defensively. I, I didn't find it a boring game at all from my point of view, okay. uh, because to be honest, like I was hoping Atletico would pot like three in the end, but yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> it, just hear, yeah. it just didn't work out that way. What's your biggest X factor heading into the game at Stamford Bridge? Um, it, it's got to be, for me, can the midfielders of Chelsea generate space on the break? If they're going mm-hmm. to set up defensively, guys like Hazard, if he's fit, Oscar and William, they've got to be running at pace and they've got to get the ball into a striker. And if it's Dembaba, if it's Torres, whoever it is, that person has got to take the one chance they're going to get. And and for Atletico, their strikers have got to show up. They've got to really put in some quality chances. And there was a couple of moments where you sort of wondered, are they going to get it here? Is it coming? Um, yes. So I would say the midfielders for, for uh, Chelsea and the strikers for Atletico. Do you anticipate Chelsea playing the same defensive style they did? Because when they played PSG at at Stamford Bridge, they were quite offensive. And I don't know whether that was the fact that uh, PSG seemed to not be able to string anything together heading into the final third. But do you anticipate them playing a more offensive style at Stamford Bridge? I, I think they have to. I think they're the yeah. home side. Their support will be up in arms if they come out and give a defensive display like that. And they know they have to score. And they've got to score first. Because if the game becomes high scoring, Atletico's at the advantage. Mm-hmm. So I think they're gonna they're gonna have to come out and line up a little more offensively and see how that takes them. Who do you have taking these games? Who do you uh, have taking uh, Chelsea Atletico? I've got Atletico. I think mm. I think that they're they've just got too much quality up front, and I think that they're a team that sort of has everything stacked against them. And I and I'm sort of a sucker for that, but I, I think that they've got the skill behind it to back it up. Are you thinking one one game with uh, with Atletico getting the wiggle? I I think that might be the way it might go. It, they yeah. may not necessarily need to win. They they will have gone through both legs of the Champions League semifinal without winning a game, and that that will set, that will be a testament to the way they'll line up in the final. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other game that uh, the other semifinal with Bayern Real with uh, Real getting the goal from Benzema in the 19th minute at the Bernabeu to put uh, to put the one nothing lead on Bayern heading back to Germany. Uh, what did you think of this game? What did you think of uh, Real sitting back and Bayern taking it to them? Yeah, well, I think the first thing that was surprising to me is that Gareth Bale out with the flu and on the bench. That was a big loss for them, but what a game Isco had. Isco had a mm-hmm. fantastic mm-hmm. game in his replacement. Um, listen, Franz Beckenbauer, after the game, or I think at halftime, tweeted something like, in the end, we will pass the ball, uh, we'll pass the ball to death or something to that effect. And, and mm-hmm. I think that that's what you might be seeing from, from Bayern. And, and, you know, Gary Neville was on about it this morning saying, you know, they, the, the, you can have 80% of possession and lose and you're going to look like an idiot. But if you have 80% possession and win, you look like a genius. 
And so right. we have to start asking our, ourselves, as you know, Pep Guardiola, regarded as one of the most bright coaches in, in our time, and credit to him, he is. He's won it all. He has all the stuff to say, I am a bright coach. He has the credentials. But is that one of his flaws? Is that one of the flaws of a Pep Guardiola team that they sometimes seed possession in, in uh, sorry, they seed meaningful possession in favor of possession? That is interesting. That's and, an interesting idea. And, 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 and you see, you know, there was a lot of sideways passing. There was a lack of penetrating passing. And so then yeah. you get Benzema coming down the pitch. That was a fantastic ball from Ronaldo. A fantastic ball from Ronaldo to set up the Benzema goal. But but they could have scored more. Angel Di Maria had the chance to Ronaldo that he teed up way over the crossbar. And Neuer looked mm-hmm. at his defenseman like, we're getting cut to shreds here. Now The, the interesting thing... Okay, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. I was, that being said, if, if they go back to the to, to the Allianz and and you know Bayern will will be set up to attack that day and there was a really interesting article that Daniel Taylor wrote about you know maybe Pep is tinkering too much with his side this is a side mm. we have to remember they they won the Champions League last year and they won and the treble they won the treble last year i mean c- come on and 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 you have a guy like Pep who wants to tinker and he wrote this after the United uh Bayern game the first like, uh, after the Interesting that he would write it then, yeah. Yeah, but he, he wrote it saying that, you know, maybe Pep is tinkering too much. This is a Bayern side that Bayern rights should have destroyed United in both legs. They mm-hmm. destroyed United in the second leg, but there was a moment where you thought something might have been possible. But you, you come back and you look at this game, and you think, maybe he's tinkered too much. Maybe they just need to set up the way Jupp Heynckes has set them. Yeah. And it was successful, and they won but- the treble. By all accounts, Pep Guardiola could have just walked in and stood on the sideline for the entire season, and they probably would have won the Bundesliga and made it to the Champions League final anyways. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting for me about the tick attack of style that he's instituted at Bayern, and obviously that's his trademark, right, uh, is that the strength of this Bayern squad is definitely their wingers in Robin and uh, Ribery. And by all accounts, I think the strength of those two players is their dribbling which he's kind of hemmed in with his own style. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and you saw that very clearly with um, a particularly Robin starting to take up more central positions during uh, Byron's possession in the final third. And, mm-hmm. and when you see a guy like Robin, who you're thinking, okay, this is a guy who cuts to the byline, and he'll either beat you on the byline and run past you, or he'll cut inside and unleash a ridiculous foot with, with those mm-hmm. fantastic curling goals that we've seen from the World Cup to last year's season. I mean, that's his trademark. And Ribery's much the same. And you have him playing centrally. I, I'm doesn't not, make any sense. I, I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm sure Pep has his realization that, that, you know, maybe he's looking for that penetrating run from Robin. Maybe he's looking to offer him as an alternative to a tr- traditional striker. Maybe that's what he's after. But is that Robin's most efficient position? Is that no. the most efficient configuration of this Bayern team? And, and my answer is no. If you yeah. look at all the highlight reels of uh, Robin and uh, Ribery to a certain extent, but more Robin, he's at his best when he's just straight up attacking one-on-one the uh, the defender, the mm-hmm. one defender that he has on the outside. And to, to bring him inside centrally is uh, somewhat ridiculous. What did you, you saw the Man United, uh, you saw the Man United Byron game, correct? Yeah. What did you think of what he was doing with Philip Lom? Look, Lom in the midfield is is somewhat of a of an interesting conundrum for 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 both Germany and for Bayern. Mm-hmm. Lom has been called by Pep the most intelligent player he's ever played with, and and remember, which is a huge this is a, compliment. Th- yeah, that's a guy who's coached Javi. Uh, you know, he's coached Messi. He's coached all Iniesta. of these Iniesta, all of these fantastic Barcelona players that are hailed as sort of this shining example of a footballer. 
and you have this guy calling diminutive Philip Lom, who is incredibly skilled. And he has really demonstrated this year that it is possible for that type of player to play in the midfield. Now, that being said, I think Philip Lom had a good game against, against Real. I think Philip Lom was responsible for clearing up the space and pressing with Tony Cruz, really clogging that midfield and trying to get back on defense. But that being said, I, I think they're going to need to go back. For, for me, prediction, uh, going forward for Bayern, when they go back to the Allianz, they're going to need to really go back to that Jupp Heinke style. They're going to need to rely on on um, on Thomas Müller as the Rome darter, sort of looking for that open space, going where the ball is or going where the space is. And they're going to need to rely on on Schweinsteiger, Kroos, getting the ball to him, Robin and Ribery playing efficiently on the wings as opposed to centrally. And just cross into Mandzukic for goodness' sakes. Yeah, I, like honestly, like the, the, uh, guy, the guy is huge. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And and you had sort of Mandzukic signed as this replacement for um, Gomez. And then, and then you're seeing these, there's stuff coming out about, you know, like, is he really being used effectively there? This is a guy who was the Bundesliga's almost, I think he was the Bundesliga's leading scorer last year. Yeah, I think for the second year in a row, if I'm not mistaken yeah, on that. Absolutely. And, and you're wondering, give them, give him the ball with the ball on his feet, see what he does, let him, let him try to scrounge up a goal. He's kind of a classical striker uh, for a coach that has never really had a classical, classical striker. striker. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's the, that's completely the, the conundrum that they're in, and that's why I'm saying they they've got to go back at least for a game to this Yup Heinkis style and try to really stick it to to Real. Otherwise, they're going to find themselves in a situation where they might be, they might dig themselves a, a, a too big of a hole. I mean, how much if, of an ego? How much of an ego do you attribute to Pep? Do you think that he's actually going to go back to a style that's not his own? I, I, but he's done it right. He did it in the last sort of twenty to thirty minutes against United both in both games. So I don't think yeah. it's an ego thing, but I think it's. It's a coach that's so true to his style and has such an idealistic view of the way football needs to play. And, and, and this is the, these are some of the allegations that came out against Barcelona after. Is that, is, is this sort of, at what point do you say it's okay to win dirty? And, and for me, it's the right. point where you're in the, the Champions League semifinal. I would submit to you that going back to that style, 20, 30 minutes left, was just those players going back to what they know and what they're suited towards rather than him directing them to do so. Especially given that it was 20, 30 minutes to the end. That's just what I would I would say. I don't know if, you know, because with Barcelona, the team was made in his image. And this team, he's not. He's kind of trying to impose his image on them. So it would be interesting for me to know, which obviously you couldn't know, but to know how much of their style changes during a game. Are the players just reverting to something they know or him dictating to them, okay, just go back to whatever you'd say? I, I'm not sure that that's, that's necessarily the case. I think that... Pep is sort of, he, he's always animated on the sideline. He's always gesticulating. He's always trying to get them to try something different. And I think that the way Pep probably looks at that Jupp Heynckes style is saying, this is another tool I have in, in my toolkit. Maybe if, if my style doesn't work for the first twenty minute, uh, for the first 70 minutes, I know I can get a goal out of these guys in the Jupp Heynckes style. I, I know it will throw the, maybe it's a tactic. Maybe that they're why, saying. Why don't you just play that style for ninety minutes? If you know, it, it's very interesting. You know, it, it's somewhat of a chess match, right? And maybe this comes back yeah. to that over tinkering idea. Maybe he's trying to get them to say, "Okay, they're playing possession. They're playing possession. They're playing possession." All of a sudden, you have Robin and Ribery going right to the touchline. You have Mandzukic making this run through the middle, and they're in this Japanke style. And maybe that's just a tactic. I wanna, I wanna hit pause because you've piqued my interest on something that I want to go back to, and that was talking about how Philip Lom was the most intelligent player. This is from Pep Guardiola. Yep. That he was the most intelligent player that he's coached. If we take out Messi, and I don't know how, uh, how you'll be able to answer this question. If we take out Messi, who do you think is the best player that Pep Guardiola has had the, uh, had the opportunity to coach? Oh man, that, that's a tough question. Sorry um, to, sorry to throw you on the spot. No, no, not at all. I think, I think, 
it, it would have to be for me, Javi Hernandez. I think that the the oh. way that 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 they have really sort of um, that that how many footballers are are training themselves now to be in this image. I mean, how many times? And something that you had sort of touched on earlier was that this idea that English teams set up to be defensive. And and mm-hmm. how many times have you heard, seen in, in in the English media in particular? You know, we have we don't have our own Javi. We don't have this midfield maestro of possession, of skill, right. of like subtle slick skill, and and the amount of influence that he has had on the modern game is incredible. And you have a guy like Javi coming out and saying, I think there's a Barcelona documentary where he said, about 15 to 20 years ago, my type of footballer was coming to a death. I was a dying breed. And mm-hmm. then you look at the resurgence of this sort of possession football of this beautiful slick distribution of this patience in possession and then you see on the other hand how it can how it can become a negative thing but i think javi sort of epitomizes that that school of thought that's funny because uh pep to a certain extent made sure that that position didn't die and i think that was the position that he played yep absolutely well it's funny it's funny that you would give xavi because i would have given iniesta yeah they're like i just imagine uh iniesta on the uh, world stage has always been this amazing footballer who seems to just dribble out like three, four guys and somehow either get the pass through or get through himself. It's it, very funny that between the two of us, we have completely different answers to the same question. It, it, it's difficult, right? Because it's sort of, those are the two shining examples. And, and we're forgetting sort of this entire Bayern side. We've said that, you know, Javi and Iniesta, forget this Bayern side. Both of us are sort of going to that partnership, which is interesting. Well, the reason I would, yeah, I guess the reason that I wouldn't go with a Bayern player yet is because... They've uh, yet to prove anything, right? They've Under yet Pep. to prove anything. Under Pep. Last year was obviously a, a massive year. Uh, okay, just one more thought on Bayern. If they don't win the Champions League, but they win the Bundesliga in record time, is this a successful season for them? Ooh, tough one. I think their support will give them patience. I think that their support have recognized we won the treble last year, and maybe that sets the standard for success. But the, the, the league in Germany right now is, is so is so... It's, it's so difficult, right? Because you have Bayern head and shoulders above the rest of these sides. I mean, you have Leverkusen and Dortmund and to a lesser extent Schalke, uh, but they can compete with Bayern. But it, if they, if they, if we look at the, at the Champions League as, as sort of Bayern's real competition, the one where they will have to struggle, and we're saying that the first time they come up against a, a real test, a real test where they're going 1-0 in a two, in a two-legged match back to their home stadium, and, mm-hmm. and they lose, well, maybe we do have to ask questions. But I think in the long run, their support will give them the patience. I, I don't know. Like after I win the treble, bring in the best coach in the world, bring in my, one of the best players on our opponent, and that's Dortmund and Goch coming to uh, to yep. there, and then also getting Lewandowski next year, and they don't win the Champions League. It'd be like, uh, yeah, I might have some questions for you guys. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, well, it's interesting. That, like last season, just set up these massive expectations. Then they brought in all the best talent they could and now if they don't meet those expectations it's going to be really interesting how the the german media kind of cracked down on these this squad and, and do, do they crack down on the squad or do they crack down on the manager will, will be the real interesting thing to see how it plays out i think they cracked down on pep i i, I can't see them not just in the, the whole tinkering thing that we've talked a lot about deserved or not i think that a lot of people are going to look at him as the issue and, and, and for me, it comes down to like the fact that you have Franz Beckenbauer, who I'm almost sure holds, uh, he does hold the position on the, on the Byron board to some extent. He's involved with the club. Uh, yes. And, and you have a guy like that questioning the style of this club. Uh, it, it may raise questions, but I don't think Pep's job is at risk or anything like that. What, what did he say? He said, well, we will pass ourselves to death. I think so. I'm trying to find the tweet now. I'm wondering if that wasn't just a, uh, all right, everybody calm down. We're going to pass ourselves to death. This is inevitable. 
but we're going to win it in the end. Yeah, I I don't know. I I really I really think that Franz Beckenbauer is sort of that iconic, you know, um, mm-hmm. iconic German Bayern football player. But you have it's just it's just so difficult. His Twitter is all in German, so I can't even find the, what I'm after. But um, it, it's difficult. It's difficult to say is this a stylistic thing, right? But we'll uh, see. To- to go back to the other team that we've completely forgotten in Real, what are your X factors for Real, Real Madrid uh, in the final leg with one goal up in can, Germany? Can they be set up to be patient? And can they be set up to be a little bit more cl- clinical? Bayern writes they should be going to the Allianz 2-0 up. Th- that Ronaldo miss in particular, mm-hmm. will that come back to haunt them? And you see his reaction to that one. It's sort of that like quintessential Ronaldo almost crying reaction, but... I think he realized that, you know what, I may have had the ball on my foot. He's an incredibly talented player, and he knows nine times out of ten, that ball is behind Neuer. And that, that tenth time that it might be might just give Bayern that room to take the game to them back in Germany. Where do you put uh, Cristiano Ronaldo as a clutch finisher? Do you consider him to be someone that you want to have with the ball at his feet with a couple minutes left, or is it just, is it just not, not yeah. his thing? W- without a doubt. I, I give him the ball at his feet. Yeah, okay. You, you, you've, you've got to give them all this fit. I mean, there's there's almost there's there's a couple of players on that team that though that could do it to them. I e, almost equally, almost equally. I, I, I admittedly I have a bit of a boner for Gareth Bale, but but he is, he, <laughs> <laughs> but he is equally skilled. Uh, not equally yeah. skilled, but he but he has that same type of skill set. Uh, he might be equally skilled. I don't know if he doesn't have the finishing numbers as of yet. Yeah, but, although I think is a goal a game guy, but yeah. But but it, it is it is some, something to be said for the fact that there's two guys like that on this team. Not to mention guys like Modric who can pop up a goal every now and then. Isco, Ilaramendi, these type of gentlemen who who can really put up a goal. The reason I ask the question is because I have this image of Lionel Messi a couple of years ago when he hit the crossbar against Chelsea mm. uh, on that penalty kick, and I'm wondering if this will be Cristiano Ronaldo's moment similar to that. I, I don't think so. I I no. think that. Before the first leg, I would have had. I mean, this again, hindsight twenty twenty. But I would have had Bayern going through no problems. But I, I think but it's that. A, yeah, I had the same thing to be honest. That they've now we we've got to rethink this in the fact that Real have earned this gap. They've earned this little bit of a an extra breath going into the second leg, and so hopefully they can go from there. So who do you think takes it? I I'm gonna say Real. I think it's gonna be close. Ooh. I think they'll they'll go away. They'll go through. Either a, a one goal or an away goal, because yeah, if they get true. the away goal, the, the tie sunk. Because I guess, yeah, it's interesting. Because look, the, Bayern, if they set up in the Japanese style at home, which they, which you almost think they've got to to win the tie, um, mm-hmm. if they set up in the Japanese style, that's playing into Real's plan. They're they're a counter attacking team. They're going to wait for Bayern to commit numbers forward, and they're going to go to their throats. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So you have Real Madrid and Atletico in the final. The Spanish do you final. want to do you want to speak to who wins this? Oh, or do you want to sit one. on do you want to sit on that one until next week or maybe I'll, after that? I'll sit on it till next week. It's tough to call. We'll see if I'm, I'll, I'll eat my there's, words next week. There's so much time between. It's literally a month away. Is it? There's is a it lot a month away to the next? It week, is the, the next I cinematic. believe it is May twenty. No, it's May twenty fourth until the championship. Oh my god, that is some time. So I think there's a lot of time for things to change, especially with Atletico and Real Madrid being. Uh, deep into the Spanish La Liga uh, yep. title race. Yep. Uh, hard to speak to right now. I want your opinion on one last thing before I let you go. Sure. Is there anything you would change about the Champions League format? There, it's an interesting. It's an interesting uh, competition in that it's the champion. It's the top teams from last year 
that are coming into it, as well as this away goal, which really bugs me to no end. What What are you thinking? Is there anything you would change? I, I really actually kind of I like the away goal. I think that sort mm. of in this North American sports culture that both you and I have kind of grown up in, we, we underestimate the amount of importance that having a home stadium can have. I mean, right. the, the importance of traveling supporters is nuts. It, there, are, there are places in, in football to play that are just so incredibly inhospitable. I think the thing I would change about it is is maybe we go to one leg matches in neutral in neutral zones for for some of the semifinal games. Ooh. I, I think that that would be really interesting. I mean, that it, would be interesting, but that would never happen because they'd be tossing away so much money. Oh, they'd be tossing tossing away a ton of money. But if, if we're talking about pure entertainment value, that might be yeah. it for me. Yeah. Uh, that might be it for me because you see two teams with both of their supporters who are going to fly in. Mm-hmm. And, and then I guess the, the the respondent question to that is: Is that fair to the supporters who have to spend this money both in the semifinal, the half final, and the final? Um, but but if I wanted to change something for entertainment value, that might be it. What what would you what would you say about um, the away goals not being the amount of away goals you get, but it's just that you get one, so it kind of wipes it out. So if oh, I'm like if, a... if yeah, so if Real if Bayern had scored at Real and then Real goes back to Bayern, if they scored two at Real and then they goes back to Bayern and then Real scores one. The advantage is wiped out, and they just have to get that second one. But I, but I think that sort of undervalues the fact that like two goals is is not one goal. You know, they they've scored two goals in an inhospitable environment where they were set up mm. they they were set up differently. You know, and I, I think that I I really like the away goal. I I really I'm a, I'm a fan of it, and and I know at times it can be frustrating. Like for example, PSG supporters must feel hard done by the away goal this year. After that, <laughs> yes. they must they must really not like the away goal. But at the same yeah. time, it's one of those things where when you win, you don't think about the away goal. When you lose, you're thinking about the away goal. That's true. That's true. Freeze, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate everything you had to say today, and I hope that you come back soon. Thanks very much, Colin. Welcome to come back anytime. Thank you to Mitch and Freeze for coming in today and dropping their baseball and soccer knowledge on us, respectively. I hope that you found their insight as helpful as I did. I hope that you found the podcast in general helpful and kind of you gained a lot of knowledge from what I've said here today that you can reciprocate at parties to impress your friends and potential suitors. That is why I'm here, ladies and gentlemen. I am here to help you look good at parties in terms of the sports knowledge that you have. If you have anything that you want to say or to respond to on what has been said by me, Freeze, or Mitch here on the podcast today, please contact me on Twitter at 30secondtimeout at 30 second time out love to hear anything you have to say in terms of what you want to hear on the podcast or responding to anything i've said about nfl nba mlb nhl soccer or the ncaa unionization topic that i love so much anything you have to say about that love to hear it on twitter follow on twitter at 30 second timeout don't forget to subscribe on itunes that is it that is all i have for you this week folks this has been the 30 second timeout podcast for april 25th 2014. Thank you for listening. Hope you tune in again next week. Take me out, Mountain City. Thanks for asking. I'm fine.